How you doing? Happy Mother's Day? Okay. Did you know that was today? Uh, any moms in the room? Raise your hand. Let's, go. Let's give it up for the moms, all that they do, all that they've done. Excellent. Um, we gave our gifts to, my son and I gave our gifts to uh, uh, my wife, his mom, yesterday, because we can't wait. Can anybody not wait for gifts? I mean, we're back in the bedroom wrapping, and he's like, can we give them to her now? And I'm like, why are we wrapping? You know. Um, but it's real easy to shop for my wife, because we'll just be kind of out and about, and she'll just sort of say, that thing right there on the shelf, if you'll just go in there and buy that, then we're good. So uh, that's how it worked. But my son, he spent, uh, he's eight, he spent the whole afternoon yesterday at some monastery. He's been wanting to go to a monastery. So he and a friend went to a monastery and looked around. I'm thinking when I was eight, it was like, give me a gun and some rocks and we're in the woods. But he's like, I'd like to go to a monastery. Um, so they went to a monastery to check it out. I think he had been hearing about it or whatever. And so, you know, it's just a monastery, just one here locally. And so he went and there was evidently a gift shop at the monastery, which I found kind of hard to take. <laughs> but it's a bad economy, and monks got to do what they got to do. And so uh, why not get them on the gift shop on the way out? And he purchased at the gift shop the Mother's Day gift for uh, his mother, which was a porcelain panda bear. So nothing says monastery like a panda bear <laughs> or Mother's Day like a panda bear. And uh, just, you know, as every mom is incredible at doing, she pulls it out, and it's just like, wow, it's my favorite panda bear. And uh, so... Who cares about the expensive gift I bought her? But, you know, the panda bear really was awesome. Um, so, yeah, happy Mother's Day. It's glad. Uh, it's good to see you all if you're a mom, and thank you so much for everything you do. If you, uh, today's the day to, to bust out the phone and call your mom and, and say thanks for being a mom. So that's it. Let's pray, and then we're going to get into uh, today's, today's sermon. God, thank you so far for just our time together and through singing and uh, worship through song. And thank you for the gift of communion, the Lord's Supper, uh, which is a moment in our gathering here where we are reminded of uh, what you've done for us, and it's hard to fathom everything that's included in that, but uh, we know just enough to be in awe, which means that we know you came here and you died on our behalf so that the world can be made whole again, and uh, that's why we're here, and so we just pray as we move through the, uh, the scriptures this morning that you will encourage us and um, challenge us to trust you and remember you. In your name we pray, and everyone said, amen. amen. If you brought a Bible, Exodus chapter 20, if you picked up a house Bible at the door, that's the page number on the screen for you. If you don't own a Bible and would like to take that one, you can completely take it out and go home and not feel like you've stolen it. Uh, we know that you do that from time to time again, because a number of our Bibles goes down every so often, but it's okay. We budget in a line item for uh, looting, and so... <laughs> you're welcome to have it. As always, we apologize that they're not like the rock star Bibles with the maps and the charts and the graphs that you can look at during the sermon, during those moments where you wish you were out of here. Uh, but it's just, it's just the Scripture, which is, again, incredible enough. But you're welcome to take that if you'd like, and that's the page number on the screen for you. As Tim said, during the welcome, we've been exploring the Sabbath, and um, it comes from the fourth of the Ten Commandments, and it goes like this. Verse 8 says, Remember which is different than the Deuteronomy version of the 10, which says observe. But this one says remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. And that word means, as Tim said, it means separated. It's different. It has a purpose. So there's a day, a moment in time that God 
would like to redeem. See, that's the idea. Six days you shall labor. The word for labor there is the word for slave. Six days, you, maybe you feel like that at your job. Amen? Or not? For six days you are to do that, labor and work, and do all your work, it says. But the seventh day, and this is where we'll stop, the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Now, I did this later in the message, uh, first hour, but let me just go ahead and put this at the top. I've gotten a lot of questions. I mean, we knew going into a series like this, especially five weeks on a topic like the Sabbath, I mean, wow, this is exciting. Uh, But I got a lot of uh, the same kind of question. Maybe you've asked this question in your head or in your home group or uh, wherever, but I've gotten this between hours. I've gotten it through email. I've gotten it just through face-to-face. But the question is, and I'm I'm going to say the question. I'm going to give you a short answer, but I'm not going to give you the complete answer, not because I don't know it necessarily, but because it's a big chunk of next week's uh, sermon. But let me just go ahead and put it out there because I know it's been circulating. The question is, are we as um, 21st century, non-Jewish, many of us Christ-following people living in 2010, are we required to Sabbath? Which is a fair question. It's a completely fair question. And I get why the question is asked. It's also a very strange question because we never ask that question connected to the other nine commandments. We never say, are we really supposed to not murder or not commit adultery or not steal? Are we really supposed to honor our parents? Are we really supposed to put God first? Are we really supposed to not worship idols, etc.? You get the picture, right? We never ask this about the other nine, but for some reason the Sabbath gets that question. So it's a fair question, but it's also a very odd, it's an odd question. Now, the answer to the question is two-sided. The answer is both no, you're not required to keep it. In fact, even from the beginning of time, from Adam and Eve in the garden, you're not made to do anything. God is not iron-thumbing our lives, saying you must, everybody has a choice. In fact, the tree in the garden is, among many things, an exit to God's ways. There's the tree. Don't eat from it. But if you do, it's your... That's your choice. It's your exit from the relationship. That's genuine love, by the way. It's not oppressive. It's a choice. And so you, on the macro level, you don't have to do anything. But on the particular level, the, the Sabbath command as it was given to the Israelites is not the same for us today. God was very, very specific with them and had certain stipulations for them that you and I are no longer bound to because of Christ. Amen? And the thing about it is, Christ changed the law. He didn't get rid of it, but he changed it. In fact, he said, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. In other words, to show you how it looks when you live it. And so he changed all of the laws. Either he made them heavier or lighter. This one he made lighter. The other ones in the 10 he made heavier, where like it says later on, do not murder. He addresses that in the Sermon on the Mount and says, you've heard it said, do not murder. But I say, don't even hate your brother because you'll be just as guilty of murder. So he made that one heavier, and we'll talk about that later in the year. But this one he made a little lighter. Now, again, I'll address this in more detail next week, but the actual stipulations that the Scriptures put on the Sabbath, you could number on your hand. And they all come down to this phrase, don't work. Just don't work. And what happened was the religious leaders through the centuries, all the way up through Jesus, and then after Jesus, the rabbis would officialize these things on paper, but they just, the question of, well, what is work? What defines work? Was the one that, was the, the catalyzing question that formulated <coughs> all of the different ins and outs of what you can and cannot do on the Sabbath. So, 
if you have friends that are Jewish <coughs> and uh, they observe what they would say is a traditional Sabbath and you listen to all the things that they do and it just sounds crazy, most of those, if not all of those, are not found in the Bible. They're tradition. They're beautiful. Many of them are beautiful. We do some of them in our own home, but they're not Scripture. All the Scriptures say about the Sabbath is don't work, which for me just feels like that's a great command, is it not? <laughs> if I'm going to complain about any command, it's not going to be that one. And so again, we'll unpack that a little bit later. So part of the answer is no, but part of the answer is also yes. And I'll say this again in a moment, but the point of the Sabbath, the heart of the Sabbath, is time with God. Undisturbed time with God where God is not fighting for my attention, which He does throughout the week because we have these days where we work and we do the things that we do, and He's struggling to get in and grab my attention or your attention. So the Sabbath becomes, however you want to implement it into your lives, it's one of the things that Jesus changed about it. There, needs, there need to be these moments where He's not struggling to be heard, whereas He is struggling to be heard throughout the rest of our weeks. Does that make sense? So maybe that takes the lid off a little bit of the pressure. And we knew going into the series that it was going to be a hot button because time is worth more than money. And when you hear God saying things like, okay, I'm putting my foot down, take a day off, it can feel intrusive. Like, don't tell me what to do with my time. Nobody likes to be told what they're doing with their time or what to do with their time. And so to hear a command saying, this is what you'll do with your time, time is money. And in our culture, especially in our culture, we will often throw money at things quicker than we'll throw our time. Nonprofits and charities understand this, they survive on it, is that we know you can't actually come and help build the house, but if you'll just give us the money, we can take care of that. And so we will much, you know, much more quickly throw money at things than our time. And uh, so it's a personal topic. Maybe that's why it gets the question, are we really supposed to do this? Maybe it's because time is so personal to us. And if God's fighting for some time, that's just another person fighting for something that's very valuable to me. And if you struggle with working too much, if you struggle with not knowing how to separate work from life, then these words are especially hard to hear. But for others, the command just sounds like, like we sort of laughed a moment ago. It just sounds great. Like, really? How, why were we not living this as kids? I mean, this is fantastic. And I'll talk about this a lot next week, but work is really anything that you do that provides for you or your family or your roommate who won't pay their rent or whatever. It's whatever you're struggling to do throughout the week that, is, uh, that gives you the things that you need to live day to day. And so work becomes, if you're a student, that's work for, for the time. You're studying and learning and getting the things and the skills together for life. If you own a company, if you work for a company, if you are a mom who stays at home and runs the kids here and there, these are all working-related things. And the Sabbath comes along, at least in the Scripture, if you look at it there, it's very, very particular. It's the most remedial of the commands. You don't have to be a scholar to figure this out. God's very, very clear here. Work six days, then stop. That's not very hard. There's no hidden meaning there. You don't have to dig any, you don't have to drill down any further. I know that's a bad phrase now, but you don't have to go down any further into the command to figure that out. And for the Israelites, there was no symbolism in the command. It was a literal work these amount of days and then stop for a day. And so, the, and, and that's what Sabbath means. It comes from the word that means to stop, to cease, to back away. And so the command is very easy, but in a general sense, stepping off of the page a little bit and looking down at it, in a very general sense, 
This command is about understanding the rhythms and balance between work and rest. And Sabbath is a stopping point in the work of my week, whatever that is for you. And it's a stopping point from that routine to rest. Even in our home, and I'll throw some examples out because we do our best to practice this in our own home. Even in our home with our eight-year-old, when we are Sabbathing, we don't even talk about school, which we would love to because he struggles. But we just get that off his back because that's the biggest thing for him. So we don't talk about that. We don't talk about my work. We don't talk about my wife's work. We just get away from those things. And so Sabbath is the stopping point in my working routine to rest. Now the biblical idea of rest or Sabbath is not just getting away to the beach and laying on a chair and reading a book, although that's great. It's not just that, although it plays a part. But the biblical idea of rest, and please catch this, it's about finding rest in God's presence. And that's not a removal from chaos, but it's a rest in the midst of chaos. Does that make sense? The word shalom that would be said, still is said, among the Hebrew people and the Jews today is not just a Hebrew word for peace, but it's about having peace in conflict. And if there's anything that's a very heavy conflict for us, it's work. It's the things that we do that provide for ourselves or our families. And it can become chaotic, whether it's a pile of projects on the desk or it's all the mail that has to be dealt with or it's all the bills that need to be paid or it's all the things that have to get our kids to. These things can be work. And so it's not a removal from those things like, I'm just going to run away to the beach, but it's somehow pausing and finding rest in God's presence in the midst of chaos. And so Sabbath is, at the base level, finding, uh, it's practicing God's presence, living in God's presence, understanding that God is here. And not that there is any moment when I'm not in God's presence. Maybe that's a question you're having right now. God is never sort of like, well, he was just here. Where did he go? He was sinning, I was watching, I was ready to judge, and then he ran away, right? This is not, there's not a moment where we're outside of God's presence, but Sabbath is the moment where, whenever it is that you schedule it. Sabbath is the moment in my life when I remind myself that God is here, and that's the difference, and that's the heart of it. In the readings leading up to this series, um, I told last service, I'm getting a haircut in a couple weeks, so just bear with me. Or one of those pins. If you have one of those pins, I can just kind of... No bows, please. We do that to our dog, which I don't understand, but <laughs> it's a short-haired dog with a bow. Um, in one of the readings leading up to the series, I, I ran across this, this statement in a book, and it said about the Sabbath, simply let your soul catch up with you. And it's the context here is our pace and our schedules and the rhythms of our work week and just normal everyday life can at times outrun the relationship that we have with God, almost like we're getting ahead of him. We don't know that he's there. We forget that he's present. And so Sabbath, again, at the base level is just being reminded that God is here and that there is a, a moment, again, if it's every day for you or if it's a set-aside chunk of time during the week or whatever, where we remember that God is present. And so for the next three weeks, uh, I want to talk about the ancient, although they're still relevant today, the ancient practices of Sabbath. 
And these are very easy to implement. If you, in your seat, you should have a card. I think everybody has a card that looks like this, if you'll pick that up. It says, uh, mine, I just take mine in the back of the Bible. There's three phrases on here, find the time, silence the time, focus the time. I've just given you the sermon. This is actually the conclusion, but I've just given it away at the beginning. That's where we're going. If you're fairly intuitive, you can pick up on what this means. But when we're talking about Sabbath, uh, we're talking about stepping back from the normal routine and reminding ourselves and remembering, as you'll see in a moment, is the way the Scriptures put it, is remembering our God and remembering that He is present in our lives. Notice this verse on the screen from Ecclesiastes. Uh, Sorry, next slide. Go ahead. There it is. Remember your Creator in the days of your what? Youth. Next slide. Rephrase this way. While you still can. While you are still able. While you still, most importantly, even care. If you would like to, turn to Ecclesiastes 12. It's right in the middle of the Bible. And if you don't know much about Ecclesiastes, it's a pretty good read. It's sort of a bucket list for the writer. He's decided to try everything out, from relationships to sex to money to power to friendships to work. And at the end of the writing, which is essentially a journal of how everything went, he's trying everything out in life. He's almost like the prodigal son, just leaving the, uh, the structured environment of home and just kind of, I'm just going to test everything. I'm going to have a relationship with everything. And then in verse 1 of chapter 12, which was on the screen, this is how he ends the journal. It says, remember your creator in the days of your youth. But what comes next is fascinating. He says, before the days of trouble come, which is sort of the first part of this, while you still can, because there will be a day where you can't. Before the days of trouble come, and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. Now as a pastor, I've done, I don't know how many hospital calls over the last 16, 17 years, a lot of them. And some of the strangest ones are when uh, you go into a room and it's a, it's a person who, it's not, it's not good, it's not good news for them. And they understand this and they're dealing with that. And they're angry, some of them. Some of them are just awesomely excited about the next part of their journey. But I've gone into rooms where, not many, but I've gone into rooms where they have said, hey, it's fine that you're here to visit me, but don't even talk to me about God. I don't want to hear about Jesus. I don't want to hear about anything spiritual. To which I'm like, well, I'm not a doctor, so see ya. (laughs) I don't have anything else to give. You know, I'm here to encourage you, but if you don't want that, that's fine. But it's really this picture of what the verse is describing. There's a point in people's lives where they say, I don't have any pleasure in this idea anymore. I don't even even want it. Now, it says, remember your creator in the days of your youth. I don't think that's necessarily age. I think youth is this picture of desire, of willingness, of ability, of like, this is what I want to do. But age is this picture of, I don't want to deal with it anymore. I don't feel like shifting. I'm settled. And so what the writer says at the end of his journey of trying everything out is saying, remember your creator when you, while you still can and while you are still able and while you even care. And it seems odd to hear the Bible say, remember God, as if there's some sort of way that we would forget that there is a God. But it's true, is it not? I mean, we can totally forget that God is near, and we can totally forget of His presence in our lives just because of our schedules, just because of our days. Um, I would like to, if it's okay, give you a day in the life at our house. Can I do that? Sure, okay. Uh, (laughs) You have to listen anyway. (laughs) 
It's a long list, so just uh, uh, hang tight with me. This is a day in the life of, uh, of in our home. And uh, we just have one child, I know for some. It's like we're not a real family. But we just have one and, um, and, and a dog. But All right. <laughs> I'm up at 4.30. Anybody with me? Who's my morning people? Let's give it up. <laughs> Here's why. I got to be at the gym by 5. And you say to yourself quietly, really, you go to the gym? Uh, <laughs> Here's why. Uh, since my accident last year, I put on all this poundage. Or as we say in seminary, a pulpit bumper. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> you'll get that at lunch. Or not, and you'll be like, the guy's weird. Uh, either way, it's fine. So I'm at the gym by five, and I do the thing on the thing with the music and the thing. And then I'm home at six, because everybody in our home is up at six. And my son, who's in his bed, he's sort of, he's the last one up, he just kind of rolls around. And I used to wake him up just by like, you know, pushing on him and waking him up, and he would just yell and get mad. But we had this little dog named Yoda who was a pug, and it's a girl named Yoda, whatever. And so I pick up Yoda, and I just throw Yoda on the bed. And Yoda just like eats his hair and licks on his face, and he just thinks that's the greatest thing. So you just got to learn how to pick your battles as a parent. Like I used to just kick him, and I want him to respect me. I want him to say, yes, sir, I'm getting out of the bed, but he responds better to the dog, so that's fine. So I throw the dog on the bed. He gets up in a couple minutes. He sits up with his hair all like this because he has long hair, and uh, I say to him about every day the same thing. Look, you know what you got to do. Do what you got to do. Breakfast on the table in 10. So I go into the kitchen. My wife's getting ready for work. I go in the kitchen. I start working on the breakfast, which this isn't really what I do. I actually just open the toaster and put the things in and put the button down, and then the things are cooking, and then we get them on the plate with the cereal and the milk and the whatever, and we put on the table. He walks out in his clothes, which never match, so we have a problem here. So he walks out. He sits down, and I'm like, oh boy, mom's not going to like that outfit. So he sits down, and he begins to eat his breakfast. Well, then my wife comes out. She's finished getting ready. It's about 6.15, 6.20. We sort of tag each other in and out of the ring. And then I go and get ready because I'm still in my workout outfit, which I'll spare you the details. And, uh, <laughs> but it's starting to fit. The, uh, <laughs> you do the same thing. I could still put on these pants. Never mind what's above them that's just sort of... <laughs> but... Um, if I lay down and breathe in, they come on. So now I go get ready for work, and then at 7, my wife leaves. At 7.15, my son and I walk out the door. He either gets on the bus for school, not MARTA, but the school bus, and then uh, I, or I take him to school, which is like a mile away. By 7.30, I'm here in this building. My wife is at school. She works at a private school. She's in kindergarten, so my assumption is that her day is fairly chaotic. It's herding kids around who are all sort of comparing iPhones and arguing over who's au pair or nanny is better, you know. And so uh, that's what she's doing all day. Uh, I come here and work. I'll spare you the details because whatever, it just it changes all the time. But I'm here or out there with people, etc. cetera. I, I get home just before 6 or 6, depending on the day or after 6. When I come home, dinner is being made or it's almost ready. It hits the table. That's sort of a moment where we all sit at the table, but honestly, we just kind of sit on the couch. It's very near the kitchen table because it's one of those kind of places. And we just watch Wheel of Fortune. And my son thinks I'm a genius because I can figure out the puzzles, but there's only one letter missing. And so <laughs> Jeopardy, we all feel stupid, right? Unless it's Celebrity Jeopardy, which you just feel brilliant. You're like, the color is red. And... Uh, we're only a third of the way through the list, so hang on. So we have dinner. 
And then it's homework time, which is fun, right? So we do the homework, we do the math cards, the spelling things, et cetera. We're sort of tag-teaming that based on who's better at that, i.e. my wife is better at that. Then it's guitar practice. He's got to practice his guitar. I'm better at that. So I sit down with Alden, and we practice the guitar, and he, he, you know, he goes over this and that. I don't, you know, it's, it's amazing that he's learning it. And so we do that for about a half an hour. And then uh, it's bath time, so we throw him in the bath, which is crazy enough. So he gets in the bath, and then he gets out of the bath. And at that time, my wife is like, uh, she's working out to those things on the TV videos where you're just doing this, you know. And so my son and I think that's funny, so we sort of make fun of her in the background like this together. And uh, so whatever. And she can't stop because that would be undisciplined to stop. So she's just left there angry at us as we're making fun of her. And then it's time to read. So we sit down and we read. We make him read. Sometimes we make him stand up and read to us. Sometimes we just sit on the bed and read or whatever. But we read for a while. And then it's bedtime, which feels like the end of the night, but it's not the end of the night. So we throw him in the bed. And then we go and sit on the couch for the next 35 minutes to an hour while he comes out of his room to the kitchen to get things to eat for the next 30 minutes to an hour I keep saying, let's just put a mini fridge in his room, stock it with juice, crackers. It can be like a little frat house for him. He can just, whatever, he can go for it. But he comes in and out for about 30 minutes or so, or or an hour at at, at the most. And then finally, he goes to sleep. And by now, it's, you know, 8.30, 8.45, 9 o'clock, sometimes later. And then we sit on the couch and look at each other and say, so how was your day? It was great. How was your day? It was great. And we turn the TV on, and then we sit there for about 15 minutes and think, why do we have cable? This is lame. I don't even like this show. It's like, I don't really care about third-tier stars dancing with real dancers. I mean, dancing with the stars. Come on. And so, but we, we were locked into it because Buzz Aldrin was on this year. And I'm thinking, really? He can dance? They should really call it dancing around the stars because the stars just sort of come out and they just sort of do this, like in stationary mode, and the, and the dancers are like sweating and running all around them. And so that's kind of that. And so we turn that off at some point, and then we just go back into the bedroom, and uh, we have every season of Friends. Any f- fans? And uh, so we just have done this for years. We just put a disc in, and it just spins for weeks, and we watch it, and we go to bed laughing, and then we do it all over again. Now, your day may be the same. It may be different. You may be going, oh, you're such a loser. I work much harder. <laughs> That's coming up later in the sermon, by the way. Uh, now, here's the question. And again, each day has its own rhythms, but basically it runs that, at least hourly. You know, it lasts that long. The question is, what part of that day, any day really, what part of that day does God get? Now, you say in your head, well, you're a pastor. He gets the whole day, right? No. It's harder than you think. So what, day, what part of the day does God get? Now every moment and every day of every, every moment of every day is God's moment. One of the biggest theological walls that you got to get over is simply that one moment in time is not more God's than the rest of time. There isn't a day that's more God's than any other day. That's not the point here. The Sabbath becomes this stopping point when I remember that every moment is God's. In Romans uh, 14, Paul says it this way. This is really cool, listen. He's addressing this very issue because late in the first century, the Sabbath as it was practiced all the way up until the days of Jesus was shifting. And the church didn't know what to do with it, and so they began to sort of shift it. And there were arguments and tension and people fighting over this idea of, One day is holy and the rest are not. 
So Paul says in verse 5, chapter 14, he says, One man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. So this was sort of the new Sabbath idea, that every day is God's. And that's not new information. I mean, everything belongs to God. The Old Testament even speaks to that. Another considers every day alike, he says. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. It's Paul's nice way of saying, would you guys stop the conversation? He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. So whatever his reasons for celebrating one day over the others, it's for God. Uh, And then it says, he who eats meat eats to the Lord. Another issue that was going on in the church. For he gives thanks to God. And he who abstains does not eat meat does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. Verse 7, for none of us lives to himself alone. So it's not like we're living in a vacuum, one day's better than the other, one day's worse than the other. For none of us lives to himself alone, and none of us dies to himself alone. Verse 8, if we live, we live to the Lord. That's it. Your whole life, every moment, every day, every breath is his. If we die, we die to the Lord. Again, even in life and even in death, it is to the Lord. So whatever, whether we live or die, we belong, there it is, to the Lord. And that phrase, to the Lord, comes, it's all over the Bible, but it certainly comes from the Sabbath command, too, that the day is to the Lord. And Paul is making it very clear, because what had happened over time was the day had become separated. Like, this is ultimately God's day, and every other day is whatever you want to do with it. Paul's reminding us that every day belongs to God. There isn't a moment that is more God's than the rest. So the Sabbath is a stopping point when I remember that truth, that everything, every moment, every breath is God's. The Psalms say it this way in chapter 46, verse 10, be still and know that I am God. Now, I don't even pretend, as a pastor, I I don't even pretend to understand how hard it is for you to make it through your days and your schedules and the worlds that you live in and keep God at the center of your attention. I, I genuinely don't even pretend to understand how hard that is. Because my last non-church gig was in 1991 when I worked on a landscaping crew with three ex-cons and two roommates who were trying to break into the stuntman business who also tried to beat me up no less than three times that summer. But ever since then, uh, my workload has been ministry-related. So I'm standing up here as a friend, as a pastor, and just saying, look, honestly and genuinely, I don't even pretend or even attempt to empathize with you about what it's like for you and how hard it must be for you working out there. Like, you'll never hear me up here saying, look, I got it. I understand how you feel. I know it's tough. I'm with you because I'm not with you. It is different. But this is what I do know. I know that it is difficult for me to stop and to remember that this is God's world, etc., And if it's difficult for me, then it must be equally difficult or more difficult for you. That's what I do know. And that's me saying to you, look, I don't understand from experience, but I understand at least my own life. And if it's hard for me, and if it can be difficult for me, then it must be either the same or infinitely more difficult for you. So I don't even pretend to say I got it, I get it. Because I've certainly gone through stretches when God was the last thing on my mind. And that's in ministry. We jokingly and yet horribly, a horribly sad 
moment in ministry was not very many years ago, but when I was in high school ministry, we would plan weeks of camps for our kids, and we did this wonderful week of camp, and we put, you know, months into the prep and, you know, all these hundreds of hours of getting things together, and it was a great week, you know, and uh, at some point after camp, we sat down in a debrief with the team, and I sort of had to confess. I was like, I don't think that in the planning process or even in the actual week of camp that I personally stepped away and asked for God's guidance. I don't even think I prayed about camp. I just think I did it. Like here comes the punch list and boom, 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 and then just carry it out to completion and then file it away for next year. I've had those moments in ministry where it's like these wake-up calls where I say either out loud or just in my heart, are you even praying about this? And you would think that like sermon writing would just be this awesomely spiritual experience, but it's not. It's a horrible experience for, you know, to be honest with you, because it's such a wrestling with not just saying what's on the page, but somehow getting in touch with it in real life. And just like, it's why I don't really preach a lot about stuff I haven't tried. You know, I said that from day one about the Sabbath. Like, I'm not up here just reading the verse going, okay, this is next on the list. We try and do this in our own lives. And so much of what is being said is coming from that. But even in the process of writing a message, I can get through it. And I know, I, I, I'm, I'm in tune enough now with who I am that I, I know when I've been dry on just seeking God about what to say. And anymore, it's like, again, not all the time, but anymore, it's like before anything even happens on the page, it's just prayer, you know, because you can write a whole sermon and never ask God about it. And you can do a lot of spiritual things and never ask God about it. And the verse here just speaks so loudly, like, remember your Creator in the days of your youth, or be still and know that I am God. I want to skip to, um, I want to skip a passage and just go to this Revelation passage. I'll put it on the screen for you. But Jesus said this in Revelation. Maybe you know this passage. He says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. So it's sort of odd image of Jesus like trying to get in like he doesn't have a key. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. It's a very odd verse, but notice the next slide. It's the image of a meal, right? And meals are personal. You don't normally share a meal with someone you don't know unless it's in one of those restaurants where they just pile you together. But it's personal. And in the days of Jesus, to share a meal was to agree with the person that you were eating with. This is why the Pharisees would come to the disciples of Jesus and say, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors or sinners? Because to eat with someone was to agree, to, or to at least give the perception that you agree with whatever this person's lifestyle might be. It's a binding kind of thing. All engagements in the Jewish world were... Uh, contractually put on paper, so to speak, at a meal. The meal was the, was the signing of the deal for the relationship. Obviously, they're relational. But the picture here in the verse is that God wants in. See, that's the thing. God wants in. He's knocking. And so this is the picture that Jesus is giving. Not that he's literally at your door going, seriously, if you would just let me in, but he's saying, I want to get in. And so the, the, over, the overarching truth about Sabbath is this. God just wants to be with us. And he's given us the freedom to work as hard as we want to work, 
But there needs to be moment, there need to be moments where we are reminded that of God's presence and that He desires to be with us. And so you could say it this way: this is really about a personal quiet time for you. It's that simple. It's not a phrase in the scripture, although we live by it. You need a personal quiet time, personal devotional life. But it's true. I mean, we don't, we're not bound to the command the way the Israelites were bound to the command, but the truth about God wanting some undisturbed time with us, that, that's still in play. That stands the test of time. It's a relationship. If it's not, then yeah, you can go your own way and just do the religious things and be His child. But He wants a relationship with you and with me. Take out your card that was on your seat that has the three phrases on it. This is so simple. Uh, you may walk out of here and go, really, was that it? Is this really how you implement Sabbath? Well, yeah, there's not a whole lot more exciting stuff to say. It's just this simple, and yet it's what makes it so complicated. The first one on the list, we're going to say it together. I'm going to count to three. You're going to say it nice and you know, give me a good full voice here. Uh, one, two, three. Find the time. You got that. You don't trip over Sabbaths. You don't, oh, look, I'm in a Sabbath. You find the time. It's an intentional thing. Now, let me take the pressure valve off a little bit. Raise your hand if you're in the room today. Anybody, everybody, if you didn't raise your hand, you're in the wrong, wrong room. Uh, in a way, in a very real way, you're practicing it just by being here. That's what you're doing. You've set aside this hour and you've come to be here, right? And so, in a very real way, you're implementing it whether you know it or not. A moment in the, the time of your week when you're saying, this is the Lord's time. Again, every, every second of every hour is God's, but this is the undisturbed time. This is where we discipline ourselves to come and find Sabbath, not trip over it, Right? And so that is very, very important. There's a great quote from first century historian, which means he lived in the first century. Ignatius wrote this about the church. This is late in the first century. He said, Christians no longer observe the Sabbath. So he's watching this trend fade away. But, he says, they direct their lives toward the Lord's day, which we understand as Sunday. It's become this day. On which our life is refreshed by him and his death. And so, the Lord's day is a phrase that comes from the Sabbath command, to the Lord. It's a day unto the Lord. And so it got remixed by the first church, the first Christians, and they said, Sunday will now be the Lord's day. Again, every day is God's, but this will be the day that we come together undisturbed, uncluttered, quieted, and it is about only Him. And so they found the time in their regular gatherings like this. And so historically, it's the way that it unfolded as well. But again, it's about finding it, not bumping into it, not tripping over it, not accidentally, you know, being in the midst of it, but it's about finding it. And so just to, you know, here comes the pastoral challenge, right? Here comes the obvious thing. If you're in town, be here. Set it aside. It's a holy time, not that it's pure and perfect, but that it's set apart. And it's not about you. You'll hear that in a moment. But number two, let's read this out loud together. The second one on the card. One, two, three. Silence the time. Now, this is a really cool statement, and I'm saying that because I didn't come up with it. I found this. But it goes like this. Whatever the time is that you've found, this is it. Ask God to silence every voice but His. Let me say it again. 
Ask God to silence every voice but his. This might be the hardest one of the three. So this is about emails and phones and thoughts about work and obligations and things you need to do maybe later in the day. It's about just being, like just silence every voice but his. So unless you're a heart surgeon and you're on call, when you come into this space or when you find the time to set aside and just be with God, just turn it off. Just get rid of it. Don't worry about it. Or at least seek to not worry about it. Uh, I didn't read this first hour and I was kicking myself, but uh, uh, Bonhoeffer said this. He's talking about God's Word, the Scriptures. And he said, there is an indifferent or even negative attitude towards silence which sees in it a disparagement of God's revelation in His Word. This is the view which misinterprets silence as some ceremonial gesture or a mystical desire to get beyond the Word. And this is to miss the essential relationship of silence to the Word. Silence is the simple stillness of the individual under the Word of God. We are silent before hearing the Word because our thoughts are already directed to the Word as a child is quiet when he enters his father's room. We are silent after hearing the word because the word is still speaking and dwelling within us. We are silent at the beginning of the day because God should have the first word. And we are silent before going to sleep because the last word also belongs to God. We keep silence solely for the sake of the word, and therefore not in order to show disregard to the word, but rather to honor and receive it. Silence is nothing else but waiting for God's Word and coming from God's Word with a blessing. For me, and this is not a practice that you have to obviously do, this is not a legalistic religious sermon, but I'm just giving you some examples. For me, I have stopped in these moments, you know, when, uh, when I'm setting aside time during my day, I told you that I'm here at 7.30, from 7.30 to 8, it's just prayer for me. Building's empty, it's quiet. And so, I just pray. I sit in one of these seats, actually, and I just pray. I don't have anything with me other than the Scriptures. And I just pray about you, about the church, about my own life, about my family, about whatever it is that's going on. But a lot of it's just sitting there, and I'll just stare at the Scriptures. And for me, and this is where I was going, for me, I've had to stop bringing other authors and writers into those times because those, for me, are just other voices. And they're great, and they're awesome, and they have great things to say. But for me as a preacher and a teacher and a leader, I start reading people's thoughts, and I, I'm, I'm mentally and consciously either debating them, agreeing with them, figuring out how I can leverage them for this or whatever. And so I just have had to get away from it. And it's only the Bible for me in those moments. And it's rich enough, you know. It's got enough in there for me to just sit on. But above and beyond anything else, when I find the spot and I find the time, it's got to be silenced. I said to you that we do our best in our own home to practice the Sabbath each and every week, and that's Saturday for us. Sunday will be a horrible day for me because I'm kind of on the gig here, right? And so it's working, it's working, and et cetera. And some of our volunteers, it would not be a good day. Sunday would not be a good day because of the hours they put in uh, so that you and I can be blessed by what they do. So for us, it's Saturday. Uh, I was sharing with our children's 
uh, and family pastor Jessica last week, because we're talking about this among our staff, just the rhythms of our work and rest and whatever. I said, Saturday is probably going to be a horrible day for you because in children's ministry, that's when you start getting all the calls. People can't make it. I'm sick. I'm going out of town. My kid's going crazy. And so that's not a good day for you. So pick another time during the week when you can break from work. You know, work a good six days, but find a day where you can't do anything but rest. Just be. Silence it. So turn the phone off and throw it in the drawer. You'll survive. You really will. The state just enacted a Sabbath on the, the city, have they not? Like you can't text when you're driving anymore. So this is a forced, what are we going to do? We're going to survive, you know? And we're all picking them out too. We're at the lights going, look, I mean, we were walking to binders the other day to get something uh, for here, and there's people at the stoplights just like trying to get the text in before the thing turns green. It's like, wow, maybe too much communication is a bad thing, you know? I don't know. Thirdly, let's read it together. One, two, three. Focus the time. And this is very short. Be still and know that I am God. That's the verse. Focus it. Sabbath is not result-driven, like if you do this, then you get this. My life will be infinitely better if I Sabbath. I was talking to someone after first service, and they said, we tried a full day two weeks ago, and it about killed us. And then she said, but yesterday was great. We did it again. And maybe the problem is when we try and break, whether it's 30 minutes or a moment here or a day there, we think there might be some result for us, like God's going to bless us with something, but really it never promises that. Sabbath is really about obedience. Just do it. God said do it, so do it. And find a way to do it and implement it into your life. So it's not results-driven, but it's God-driven. It's about God. And so be still, not for any other reason other than to know that God is God, to remember that this is His world and everything in it is His, including you. That's it. Does that make sense? Here's what I want you to do. Take the card, keep it, strap it to your Bible, tape it into your Bible, put it in your purse, your wallet, wherever it is that you're going to see it, and try it. Again, it could be daily for you, it could be weekly, it could be moments during the month. But figure out how to implement those things. You've got to find it, silence it, and focus the time. And I would love to hear from you, um, which we've been hearing a lot. I mean, we knew going into this series we would get a lot of <laughs> uh, I got a text last week from a dear friend. It, it was great because, I mean, I, I, I knew what he was saying, and he meant it humorously, but also uh, re- in reality. But he said, Derek, you've you got to stop writing sermons about me, you know. And, uh, but I, dear friend, I mean, I know it was like, this is funny, but stop, really, you know. Um, and so, so we know that this is a tough, tough thing, but at the, at, the, at the base of it all, it's just God wanting to be with you and me in an undisturbed setting uh, so that he can just repair and encourage and minister. That's all. And so don't be afraid uh, to find the time and to silence the time and to focus it on him. So I'm going to pray and we're going to uh, sing, so we'll all stand together.